0: Welcome to episode 228 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. Today's guest is Dr. James Frith, a battery expert I first interviewed years ago when he was head of Bloomberg NEF's energy storage division. He moved to venture capital firm Volta, which specializes in energy technology investing a few years ago. And I can't think of anyone better qualified to explain the past year in the battery storage space. And what we can look forward to in 2024. So, welcome to Energy Talks, James. Hi, Markham. Thanks for having me back on. Really well, happy you know, to be here again. I've, I've, I've missed our chats because you're one of the uh, people who can. You're not confined within the the battery space or this space or that space. You you kind of take a more global. Uh, you have a broader view of the energy transition than many of the experts I talk about, and within which you fit those energy technologies or battery storage. And I, that's kind of the approach I, I'm always looking for here. And so we've, we've we've missed your insights, James.
1: Well, like I said, it's it's been a while since I've been on, and and, and very happy to be back, uh, and hopefully providing some more insights today. Oh,
0: I have no doubt. I have. Don't be so modest, James. It's, I know it's that English modesty. You passed it on to Canadians. We we get it. It's it's all right. You don't have to do that. We have a lot of Americans in the in our uh, in our audience, and and they're probably rolling their eyes right now. I joke, of course. I joke. Um, James, let's start with an overview of the of the battery industry. What, what kind of you know? What have
1: you seen over the last year? So it's been a really interesting year. I mean, obviously going into the beginning of 2023, we were at the period of or just coming down from kind of very high commodity prices. So we'd seen lithium reach a kind of, you know, new all time high of $60,000 per metric tonne on an LTE basis. Um, And that was putting a lot of pressure on the industry. So, you know, particularly automakers were finding that they're, kind of EV production and sales were kind of unprofitable. There was a real focus to see how you could reduce the um, the cost of batteries going into these vehicles. And, you know, a couple of things have happened as a result of that. You know, one of them being kind of continued and increased focus on the use of LFP, particularly for lower cost um, EVs. Uh, the other one is, is, you know, I think particularly interesting. And that's the the rise of sodium ion batteries, again, as a result of this need for lower cost materials to lithium or lower cost solutions to lithium ion batteries. We've seen a huge kind of growth in interest around sodium ion over the past year. So those are the kind of, you know, the two main trends. But then what's also interesting is is off the back of that, kind of coming into the year, what we've seen is those commodity prices have come down significantly. um, And actually, as a result of that, After seeing kind of the average price of batteries increase for the first time in 2022, in 2023, we're we're back down to battery prices falling again. And in fact, um, at $139 per kilowatt hour, um, according to Bloomberg NEF's latest battery price forecast, that's actually the lowest average price we've recorded um, over the kind of past 10, 15 years of, of the lithium ion battery industry in, in EVs. Um, so we've gone, it's been a kind of a, a year of huge swings. Um, and you know, now what we're seeing is kind of some compounding, um, effects of the kind of current economic climate, which have, um, meant that EV sales aren't as high as some people thought they would be. And, and I say something some people, because actually, if you go back and you look at what analysts industry analysts were expecting um ev sales are kind of in line with what in, industry analysts expected it's just the automakers where um sales have been you know lower than what the automakers were, were expecting but as i was saying the kind of impact of that is slowing ev sales are, are also kind of pushing prices down combined with more capacity and, and slight oversupply in china
0: yeah yeah we should talk- <clears throat> We should talk about EVs for a moment, because your former colleague, uh, Colin McCarriker, who is the head of transportation at Bloomberg NEF, has been all over social media the last couple of days pointing out that, in fact, EV sales are almost exactly where they thought they would be uh, at the end of 2024, which is about 14.6 million units. And and a very large percentage of it, it, the, the total uh, auto sales, as I understand it, uh, have fell, fallen in 2023 and but the the number of units forecast for ev sales is where it was expected to be and now makes up a bigger percentage of total auto sales than maybe had been had been expected so all this talk about you know the negative talk around ev sales and slowing and so on is actually a um uh, i don't know it's a bit of a negative narrative i i can imagine where it originated from but nevertheless that's the way these things these, these things go now you just mentioned china And I want to, we're going to get into some of the the technologies like Toyota and and its solid state uh, batteries in just a minute. But listeners will know that um, I have a hypothesis, which is that China has become a clean and the clean energy uh, uh, superpower, kind of like the Americans uh, emerged out of World War II as as the industrial power in the world. The U.S. Is woke up in 2020, partly as a result of COVID, so now they are chasing China for clean energy industry investment, which then forced Europe to scramble and, and try to keep pace with the United States, and now we have a clean energy arms race, and that arms race is what's going to be propelling uh, the acceleration of the energy transition over the, next, the foreseeable future batteries play a huge part in that or energy storage plays a huge part in that and china overwhelming i you know we keep saying things like 70 80 percent 85 percent of of the various parts of the supply chain that uh, china dominates maybe you could just give us your take on where china fits into that
1: scenario that i just sketched out so this is yeah this is a kind of you know an interesting point and as we were discussing earlier you know i think you're right that the kind of competition between europe north america and you know china in particular w- will certainly help with innovation technology adoption kind of costing down etc but i think it you know it's really important to remember that it can't happen overnight you know china has has developed these supply chains over the last kind of in the battery industry, as I say, kind of 10 or 15 years. Um, and if China hadn't developed those supply chains, we wouldn't have the economies of scale needed to kind of get battery costs to where they are today. And it's going to take a while for both North America and Europe to develop their own kind of Chinese you know, supply chains that are independent of Chinese kind of control and influence. Um, so well, and, you know, well, I think that is 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 also kind of a good thing in the long run for, for many reasons, kind of um, security of, of of kind of critical materials and, and, and energy being, you know, being one of the obvious ones. Um, while that is a good thing, to get to that point, the European companies and U.S. companies are going to have to continue working with Chinese companies in the near term. They can't get rid of those from their supply chain. Um, so, you know, as a as I say, well, I think that you're right. The kind of competition in the long run is going to be good. We need to remember that there's also collaboration there and we need to work together, particularly in the near term, the next three years um, while we're building out those supply chains in, in Europe and the U.S.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point because Biden and Xi Jinping have, have been meeting of late and and they kind of, that's the the over, the, the overriding context for those meetings is that the U.S. and China are going to be competing for hegemony in, in, in some of these spaces, But at the same time, they understand the need to cooperate as as well. uh, And that tension is just inevitable, Uh, but ultimately probably, you know, really fruitful uh, for the beneficial for the energy for the energy transition. So what just in a uh, briefly, what trends can we should we be looking for uh, in the Chinese battery and energy storage markets
1: over the next year or two? So I think if you had asked me two weeks ago I probably would have had a different answer. Um, but given the the, the recent um, kind of clarifications around foreign entities of um, concern, um, you know particularly in relationship in relation to the the U.S IRA um, now clearly th- th- there are some ways that Chinese companies can enter U.S supply chains, um, but it's mainly focused on the companies being active outside of China. Um, and also maintaining kind of or, or making sure that there is limited to no um ownership or control by the Chinese government. So, what I suspect we'll see is is probably a continuation of, of what actually you know has started a few months ago. And that's Chinese companies setting up joint ventures outside of the country that will allow them to participate in, in particular, you know, the, the, the US um, battery supply chain. So I think we'll start to see more Chinese companies setting up yeah operations abroad uh, and i would suspect that increasingly we'll see them setting up um, operations in in either mexico um, or canada
0: yeah that that makes a lot of sense actually and and the reason for that for folks who don't know is that the us inflation reduction act allows for countries like canada and mexico that have free trade agreements with the united states to uh, to qualify for for uh, credits and and subsidies under the ira so what about the uh, amount of investment in u.s battery plants and the battery supply chains because james went, one of the things like the, the ira is barely a you know a year old uh but it's also depending on how it rolls out uh, but all of the legislation together it will be r- probably over a trillion dollars uh over the next decade so there's a lot of money and that money uh, the americans are being very clever about it i think because they're saying okay how do we take public funds this trillion dollars and then use it to lever more capital from the private sector and they and the when i talk to american uh analysts and 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 entrepreneurs who are working uh in the clean energy technology industry they say the amount of activity over the last year is just mind blowing and you know people are making it, it, plans and investment plans and so on now you work there you know you're part of that what's your take on it
1: yeah i mean it, it is incredible um to see the impact of the ira as you say we're seeing companies you know well kind of lots of startups kind of becoming more active in the u.s but but more interestingly even you know a lot of companies that had plans for building capacity in europe are actually scrapping those plans and moving production to the US and I think to me that 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 tells you how powerful the the impact of the IRA is companies that have already invested you know money and time in developing facilities in in Europe will write off that investment in order to move to the US where they get better support and and kind of yeah better be, be, better kind of opportunities as well so it's it, it is incredible to kind of see what's happened it's interesting to see the responses that are coming out, you know, as a result of that. So the, the there are discussions um, within the, within Europe, um, kind of initially kind of aimed around production of hydrogen, but that could easily be applied to batteries as well. That material that benefits from the IRA subsidies, particularly, particularly production tax credits in the U S would have to then face a kind of, an adjustment or a tax when they enter the Europe to to take away that advantage that the IRA has put in place you know that that that, that is incredible you know we're also seeing kind of the European Commission finding or or making new pots of capital available to help support um, companies in you know in Europe to try and match that level of support that's coming from from things like the loan program office um, in the U.S. as well so you know it, it's really shaken up the industry. Countries and, and regions are, are trying to react to that. Um but it's yeah it's it's energized the industry as well. Like you say, there's been so much activity in the US. We're seeing so much kind of capital being poured in um from you know from the private sector, from governments uh, and, and from the the kind of um, public sector as well. It's it's really kind of incredible to see.
0: Now you were on the private sector capital of that of that equation. Um are you seeing in your own, uh, your own firm's investment strategies, uh, changes, changes in volume, changes in strategies as a result of the IRA?
1: So it's, it's an, yeah, it's an interesting point. We've certainly seen some changes uh, in volumes, um, I would say as, as, as part of the IRA, tends to be kind of earlier stage companies in 2023. Um, but part of that is because of the general economic um, kind of climate that we're in. So we've seen a lot of kind of early stage companies focusing their efforts on, on kind of scaling up in the U.S. in order to access those, those that IRA funding. For later stage companies, although there has been, you know, there was a flurry of activity at the beginning of the year as a result of kind of the IRA, well, IRA and the, the bipartisan infrastructure law uh, and the kind of loans available in that, um, But equally, because of the kind of general economic climate um, with high interest rates this year, it's been quite a a difficult year for some companies to raise. And so I think a lot of companies are also waiting until 2023 um, where uh, sorry, 2024, where they're hoping that um, interest rates will come down. There'll be more capital available, you know, and then I think we will see a lot more activity. And we think I think that kind of quantum activity will be much higher than we saw in kind of 2022 before the ira was announced um so as i say we're seeing some impacts now generally in the earlier stage companies i think for later stage companies we'll see more of them you know more activity there next year um as the kind of general economic climate calms down a bit
0: well let's talk about the state of battery technology i mean this has been a when i was interviewing you in past years this was a frequent uh topic of those those interviews and one, the one story that has caught my attention is Toyota and its solid-state battery announcements. It's, you know, it's been faced a lot of criticism. It's the world's largest auto manufacturer, but it's faced a lot of criticism for, criticism for its decision to go slow on the switch to electric vehicles. And even though it's had Priuses for, what, 12, 15 years, and, you know, a lot of the the learning of an electric building an electric vehicle uh, also – presumably Toy- toyota would have, would have learned that designing software for priuses and and bat- how to work with batteries and and so on um, but what can you tell us about the toyota solid state battery story
1: it's a tale i mean as, as most uh, solid state battery stories are it's a tale of twists and turns um you know i think um we we've known for for many years that toyota has been looking into solid state batteries for lithium Uh, sorry for for EVs but they have been fairly tight-lipped on exactly what they you know what they were developing what type of um sort of electrolyte they were going to use when they were looking at introducing it and then uh, you know earlier this year we then had the kind of surprise announcement um let's say that they would be introducing so well, EVs, commercial EVs um, with solid state batteries as early as 2025. Now that took a lot of the industry by surprise, um, given uh the kind of typical development times needed in the EV or in the automotive se- sector. Really, to be talking about introducing solid state batteries at scale in 2025, you would need to be producing um kind of prototype cells at kind of, you know, on gigafactory production equipment this year um and be kind of testing them in um kind of evs on the road early next year and so kind of clearly without kind of seeing any evidence of that it seemed fairly far-fetched that toyota would manage to kind of introduce systems that early and i think this was um you know I, i i think that then there's perhaps some kind of feel of justification um in the industry when we had an announcement um kind of two or three weeks ago from toyota that actually they weren't going to introduce solid state batteries until cl- closer to 2030 and even by 2030 they were likely to only have enough solid state batteries to serve kind of 10,000 evs in that year so that to me and you know to me and to many others that's a much more realistic assessment of when solid state batteries could be introduced and actually a much kind of more um, practical um, view on the volumes of solid-state sales that would be introduced. You know, it's unlikely to be in mass market electric vehicles. It's more likely to be in very kind of specific, more likely kind of premium segment vehicles, low volume vehicles as well. Um, But then, you know, it's clearly a good milestone. If if Toyota can get 10,000 vehicles on the road with solid-state batteries in 2030, you could realistically expect that perhaps by 2035, you're at the point where you have um, kind of mass market adoption of solid-state batteries. Um, So there's still a way to go, um, but uh, glad to see more realism in the industry.
0: Yeah, I remember a couple of years ago, I interviewed Dr. Uh, Dirk Uwe Zauer from Aachen University. who's very well known in the battery space. And and they do a lot of testing at Aachen University in Germany uh, of new chemistries. And we were talking about solid state. And he said, well, you know what, if, if we were going to have solid state batteries by 2026, 2028, he said, we'd already have those batteries on our bench, uh, test benches. And we don't. And, and there's no indication that they are coming uh, anytime soon. So, you know, all you have to do is work out that timeline from when we're likely to get them. And and 2028 2030 is far more, far more likely. And I think, you know every time i i hear about toyota and their solid state i think back to that interview with him and it turns out you know that he's likely to be correct
1: yeah no exactly you know as, as far as i'm aware of there are very few companies or close to no companies that have produced a um full solid state battery at automotive scale and on kind of commercial production equipment you know, so we we are still 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 a way away away, um, but I think you know on the other side, it's promising to see the likes of Toyota, etc. Saying that they will have solid state batteries by twenty thirty, um, because you know I, I still do think that the solid state battery is a kind of natural development of the lithium ion battery that in the long run will will provide us with hopefully lower cost, higher performance, um, and um, better safety. Now, um, an interview earlier this year, and I forget who it
0: was with, but the, the, the uh, interviewee said that the average incre- annual increase in battery energy density was 7%. And, uh, and, that's, so I, and I assume that's with lithium-ion NMC batteries. So assuming that that's correct, I mean, that's not nothing. You know that that's actually pretty healthy, and I mean, every four years or five years, you're going to get an increase by a third in in uh, energy density and and range for batteries. Uh, then that I think would have a fairly big impact on EV adoption. And uh, so, what what's going on with the conventional ba- uh, battery technologies? Are they able to squeeze more energy density out of it? Uh, better performance, uh,
1: that sort of thing. Yeah, So they certainly are. And, um, you know, I think this is one of the potential challenges actually for the adoption of solid-state batteries. And that is that the performance of, of kind of traditional liquid-based lithium-ion batteries is improving faster than most people were expecting. And so the delta between um, kind of liquid lithium-ion-based systems uh, in 2030 and solid-state, is is not looking as big as it was before, you know. So it may be that actually, um, solid state is is struggling to match the performance of of liquid based lithium ion at that point, um, you know. And it may not be for another couple of years, as you kind of scale the, the the solid state industry, that you get that kind of performance improvements. You know, having said that, um, you know, as I say, we are seeing improvements in traditional lithium ion systems. A lot of the improvements over the the kind of the 2010s came from improvements to the cathode you know i think what we're looking at um, for the kind of 2020s and what seems to be kind of the general expectation in the industry is that a lot of the improvements in in energy density in in particular um and and indeed kind of charge rates will come not from changes to the cathode but actually changes to the anode um so the adoption of of silicon is is probably going to be the biggest change that we see in in cell design um, this decade.
0: Well, let's talk about some of the lower end batteries, you know, the, the sodium ion, lithium ion uh, phosphate. Um, are we seeing the declines in, in price and the uh, increase in energy density that will allow chemistries like that to become widely adopted in much lower price EVs? Because I think we, you know we're still seeing a lot of conversation between uh company uh, automakers and and maybe even dealers about where we are on the adoption curve you know I, I saw one dealer uh, saying that well you know we've got the early adopters they're kind of squeezed out of they're out of the market now they've they've bought and now we're getting into what uh, A.E. Rogers would call the early majority adopters and and they have a, a different they calculate uh, cost uh operating cost, uh, value and risk in a different way than the, than the innovators do, the early adopters do. And, and that means the prices have to come down and performance has to go up and risk has to go down. Um, what can you tell us about that?
1: So, so I completely agree. Um, you know, I think we're, we're, certainly at that stage now um, where the, yeah, the next kind of quantum of of EV owner is looking for kind of that, that EV that's priced below kind of $40,000, um, Uh, per vehicle which in the u.s accounts for about 80 percent of um, of vehicles sold so there there, there really is a kind of a a need to reduce you know cost to get in there i think certainly the industry is is looking at lfp as one of those um, options and you know sodium ion as we discussed has been considered as another kind of very low cost alternative to lithium ion it obviously comes with a, a slight disadvantage on the energy density side so you can't get as you know far um or you can't fit as many kilowatt hours into the same space and for the same weight the you know the other issue that that, that I think um, is coming up against sodium ion for, for adoption into electric vehicles is that lithium ion or lithium prices now are, are down at about you know twenty thousand dollars per ton LCE um, in China last week. And that means that the cost advantage of sodium mine has been reduced significantly. Um, if you look at the kind of bill of materials uh, going into a uh, sodium mine system, you're you're looking at somewhere about kind of forty five dollars um, per kilowatt hour. The the bill of materials for an LFP system is not that much higher. Um, and then when you consider the kind of economies of scale in the um lithium iron industry actually the manufactured cost of of lfp cells today is likely to be lower than that of sodium iron so there's a bit of kind of um there's a bit of tension there but i think certainly space for kind of sodium iron in in stationary storage um but the 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 lfp for me is going to be the kind of low cost um systems that are adopted in in the ev space in the next kind of five years or so i'd say now your comments about
0: lithium uh uh, availability and price leads me to uh, a question about a firm that you, your company recently led a round of financing for. And, and I want to tell a little bit of a story because uh, in 2018, I was the keynote speaker at the, I forget the the proper name for the organization, but it was basically the uh, geophysicists of, of Alberta. And I remember this was a cold winter night. It was in December, if I remember correctly. And I'd done the the the, the presentation, and I met this uh, woman, uh, Amanda Hall, who was a geophysicist. had been working for a, a big oil company at that time. And she told me how frustrated she was that she would bring these uh, innovative ideas forward and get nowhere inside the company. And so she said, "You know what? I'm gonna. I'm I'm really tired of this." Uh, I'm thinking of starting up my own company uh, on in this, you know, lithium extraction space. And uh, lo and behold, she did the next year. And now her technology, I mean her the success of of Summit Nanotech and Amanda Hall as the CEO is she's a she's a rock star. You know she she's doing amazing things, and uh, I think has just signed or is about to sign her first commercial uh, contract in Chile uh, to extract lithium there and 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 you and you your firm thought enough of her her and her her company and her technology to invest in it tell us a little bit about give us an update on where summit nanotech is
1: Yeah, so i think you know we we we, we, we're really kind of pleased with the work that amanda is doing at summit um and and for those that don't know kind of summit is, is working on a technology called direct lithium extraction um so this is a method that is is focused on reducing the time that it takes to extract lithium and increasing the amount of lithium that you extract per kind of liter of of brine that you you have to pump out from the ground um you know so so so, so it has the kind of ability to really kind of open up supply chains and increase lithium supply quite significantly so going back to the kind of points around the ira you know this, this and and the need to kind of rest supply chains away from China. You know, this DLE technology is is one that I think um, for the lithium industry and lithium-ion battery industry is going to be one of those enabling technologies that allows the industry to kind of move away from from Chinese-controlled spl- Chinese supply chains much quicker than they would have been able to do um, otherwise. And, and kind of clearly, you know, we're seeing the appetite in the industry for that with, you know, as you say, kind of um summit about to sign a a commercial offtake agreement we've seen kind of a number of companies in the u.s kind of developing these geothermal kind of brine extraction technologies and again signing deals with companies like gm etc so there's you know there's a lot of interest there and from from what we see this is a way to not only kind of as i say improve the extraction rates and um kind of the supply of lithium but actually it's it's a much about improving the environmental kind of footprint of the, the lithium industry as well by reducing the amount of water that you need to um use for kind of every kilogram of, of lithium that you extract so i think we're, we're, we're very kind of excited about what summit's doing um, i won't go too much into the, the the kind of details on the the upcoming announcement um but uh i'll, I'll just say if i said you know finish by saying that we are very excited as well by what what a is doing um, and about the kind of, you know, the work that Summit's doing in general.
0: Yeah, I would agree. It's an exciting, exciting company, and and uh, Amanda deserves all the, the kudos that she's getting. And and I should point out, uh, you know, <laughs> I still see these memes on uh, on on social media, you know, with criticisms of of lithium extraction and you know the the old style of the mining and the and the evaporation ponds that take eighteen months and all of that, and basically with uh, with Amanda's technology, you get the lithium the same day. No more no more evaporation ponds. None of the kind of environmental uh, impacts that you had with the old technology. And I and I and I think this is before we get into. I wanted. To, I'm going to want to wrap up our interview with a discussion of stationary storage. Uh, but before we get into that, uh, I want to. Amanda sparked a question uh, about innovation because I was reading the IEA's report on innovation ecosystems and about what's going on in China. And China's done a very good job over the last 20 years of building up an an innovation engine, if you will. Uh, Now, the Americans are still number one by far. That's the the key to their economic success is, is their innovation ecosystem and how they manage to crank out these new technologies and commercialize them. So the question becomes, Will the Americans, in particular, chase the the Chinese and try to beat them at their own technologies? You know, like the uh, lithium, uh, the NMC batteries. That, or will they look strategically and say, you know what, we can, we are really good at innovation. We're going to come up with the next generation of of battery. We're going to leapfrog over where the Chinese are, and that's what's going to give us the competitive advantage uh, heading into into the future. What would be your take on that? So, I,
1: so my take is, is, is certainly, I agree with you that really they, you know, the US should be focused on advanced technologies if they want to leapfrog. Um, I think what's interesting is if you look at the first round of awards um, as a result of the uh, bypassing the infrastructure um, law that were announced um, earlier this year, there were several projects, you know, that were awarded um, kind of across and i think it's 20 projects getting something like um 2.3 billion uh, in awards to kind of help 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 build these um build capacity most of that money was focused on kind of current commercial technology so it wasn't focusing on 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 the future and that's also important because you need to have some sort of uh, of technology that you can actually kind of get operating today in order to even have a you know a place in the market to have a seat at the table um, you know, and then it's it's interesting again in the, the kind of announcement two or three weeks ago from the um, U.S. Uh, DOE for the next round of, of funding. Um, the There is a specific kind of call out in, in the announcement uh, in the kind of press release from the White House in the, in the Department of Energy that talks about advanced technologies and advanced manufacturing. So I think, you know, w- while the first round of kind of funding looked like it was supporting kind of today's state of the art there is this focus um in, in u.s funding to look at next generation technologies and and you know as you say they need to do that in order to kind of leapfrog the chinese and to um you know to, to secure their place in the future of the industry not just in the industry today
0: uh for listeners uh you may be interested in this uh we uh... James, you mentioned the Department of Energy. Uh, next week, I'll be interviewing uh, a specialist from the DOE in virtual power plants. And we're going to be talking to DOE experts over in 2024 about some of those advanced energy technologies that they're supporting. And uh, I will be chasing Jigger Shaw uh, with great vigor for an interview. We'll, we'll see if I can, if I can bag them, that would be a uh, quite a, a feather in our cap if we can, but uh, we'll see how that works out. Uh, well, let's talk about stationary storage, uh, James. Um, what are we seeing at utility scale, residential scale and commercial and industrial scale? What are any, the trends in those uh, sectors that caught your eye? I mean, I, I would have said, you know,
1: certainly at the, the, commo- at the, industrial scale sorry or or kind of grid scale you know the 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 focus this year has certainly been on long duration energy storage finding new new kind of technologies there finding economics at work um, which which is you know again a very interesting area and and something that's crucial if we want to kind of continue increasing our um you know increasing the level of renewable um, generation on our grids what I find interesting in that kind of conversation is that there's no um, one definition of what long duration energy storage is. If you talk to some folks, they'll say it's anything over kind of four hours of storage. Others will say anything over kind of 10, 12 hours. Um, you know, to, 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 to me, and, and the reason that people's it as over kind of, you know, four hours is they say that that's the, the, this time domain that kind of lithium ion operates in today. The issue I have with that is that if you go back two years, the kind of time domain that lithium-ion was operating in was was kind of two hours or less. If you go back four or five years, it was kind of one hour or less. And if you go back kind of a decade, it was 30 minutes or less. So as the cost of lithium-ion batteries comes down, the kind of time domain that they can economically address increases. So the expectation is is that in kind of two or three years' time, lithium-ion battery systems will kind of routinely be deployed for six or eight hour storage kind of applications so to me when i think of long duration energy storage i'm more thinking kind of beyond um 12 hours of storage or at least beyond eight hours of storage um so that you really get into the kind of um you know, the the area where there is not a technology today that suits it, and there's not a technology in the future that's that's we can kind of see today that's going to suit it. But I think what the industry really needs to kind of address if you're talking about long-duration energy storage is not the technology, but the mechanisms that you can use to kind of reward that capacity on the grid. I
0: interviewed the CEO of a company in the US that makes flow batteries. Yeah. And if I remember correctly, I think of vanadium flow batteries, and he said they currently can do 12 hours and they will very soon be able to do 16 hours. And in a lot of applications, particularly in California, Arizona, Texas, where you've got a lot of solar during the day, that a 12 to 16 hour battery covers a lot of your needs. And what, what's your take on the flow battery technology and where it might fit into stationary storage market.
1: So, so I, I, so I completely agree. You know, I think, um, if you can get to kind of twelve to sixteen hours, that 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 covers the majority of your needs. Um, in, in terms of flow batteries, and, and this is the a, a bit of an issue, you know, particularly the one that I mentioned around not really having a mechanism for rewarding longer duration kind of storage capabilities. So if you look at the the market today, a lot of storage, a lot of stationary storage capacity is built um, based on revenues coming from frequency response um you know so fast fast response um services with some payments for capacity um there's not yet in most markets the kind of pricing dynamics that would incentivize um just kind of pure play arbitrage now if you look at a lot of non-lithium based technologies the issue that they have is that they can't serve those short duration um needs so there's quick response times as well as lithium ion can so they're they're typically just looking for kind of you know they're, they're reliant on one or two revenue streams um in order to kind of get the, the you know in order to kind of um support the projects economically um now as i say there's not really anything that, that, that kind of encourages long duration storage build today so although you do have kind of low batteries that can do kind of 12 hours economically and and today would be lower cost than uh, lithium-ion battery system. the The issue is that, or the potential issue is that by the time you get to a point where the market actually rewards kind of ten or twelve-hour storage systems, the cost of lithium-ion batteries have come down because they're scaling in 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 the stationary storage market, but also in transport and other areas. the The cost of lithium-ion batteries comes down at a faster rate than the flow batteries, and so actually in four, five, six years time. You know, maybe lithium-ion is still the lower cost alternative to flow. And so really, it's it's how, does flow, how do flow batteries or alternatives, how do they scale up and bring costs down when they're not getting the same kind of market share as lithium-ion is?
0: Oh, it's interesting. I didn't know that. That's a, a, a good in, explanation for why flow, flow batteries haven't caught on the, the way we might have expected. Um, one of the things uh, I want to ask you about is the role that uh, b- battery storage is going to play in the uh, proliferation and, and adoption of distributed energy resources. So we're talking primarily about about solar, small scale solar, rooftop solar, community solar. Maybe uh, I'm particularly interested in in uh, solar uh, adopted by com- you know bigger commercial and and, and industrial. Issue. because they have they usually have space they've got you know, big buildings with lots of lots of rooftop space They're, they've got yards where they can put up solar arrays and and as you know as electricity prices climb or outages climb you know it it becomes more and more economic for them to to look at self-generation there's a lot of utilities and system operators worried about self-generation by bigger players bigger consumers
1: what's your take on that You know, it's, it's an interesting one. I, I think there's, um, th- there's certainly a need for more distributed um, resources as much as anything, just because the grids, you know, around the world, the grids are not in a position where they can support large scale build out of kind of wind and solar at the transmission level. Um, there's too many kind of constraints. There's a lot of investment that's required to upgrade the, you know, the transmission. So actually kind of, in the near term, I think going to a more distributed model, um, makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I, I think this question is if you go there in the, near, in the near term, will you ever move back? Uh, you know, maybe the answer is no, um, but the fastest way to kind of get to the energy tra- to, to, to kind of, you know, accelerate the energy transition to me is, is going to a distributed model. And I think you're right that storage can play a big role in that, you know, I think the, the issue that we see on the, you know, for smaller scale storage projects today is that there's not many companies offering those services. Most of the storage developers are looking at grid scale stuff, or you have some, you know, smaller kind of wholesalers who are doing um, rooftop solar who are also offering residential storage systems, but doing those kind of, you know, 500 kilowatt hours to to kind of 10 megawatt hours on a commercial industrial site, where you have this potential kind of, um, you know, ability to to self-generate um there's just not enough players out there in the market today who can offer those services and who have those skills so that to me is the kind of barrier to to, to adoption there
0: but but uh it sounds like you would agree that there's lots of potential it just the market uh, hasn't evolved yet in that direction certainly there's there's plenty of uh, discussion around policy and, and regulatory frameworks to encourage that but um I, I'm, it's fascinating to me to watch the americans Modernize and upgrade their power grid in real time. I mean, the 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 pace of development, as I'm, you know, it's just it's frantic south of the border, uh, because they have so many uh, so they have so many issues. They you know their power grid is pretty old and creaky, uh, heading into the 2020s. And now, if they're going to electrify, uh, that's one of their highest priorities: is to get is to get their grid up to snuff. And and it's just fascinating because in Canada, which is not doing any of that, we're we're just like the state old aunt, you know, who who's watching the young kids run around frantically uh, doing stuff. We we, uh, we just haven't had any, you know, we're 84% zero or low emissions, and and we haven't really got a, a much uh, load growth yet, you know, so that we would have to expand generation into wind and solar and build new transmission. We haven't done any of that. It's, the, the market isn't telling us yet. And so we're way behind where the Americans are. And anyway, apropos of nothing, uh, just an observation for Canadian uh, listeners. Well, James, this has been fascinating, as it always is. And uh, we can't we shouldn't let uh, a long period go between our next interview. Uh, Appreciate this. And we'll look forward to the next one. Perfect.
1: Thanks so much for having me on, Martin.